In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. You better watch out. You better not cry or pout, and I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. To be a child in December is to know the most exquisite kind of waiting. Waiting impatiently. Waiting in hope. Something is about to happen. Something big. But it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. To be a child in the weeks before Christmas is to experience existentially the great theological paradox of already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is present, but it is also coming. The world has been redeemed, but it is not what it, is, it, what, what it can be or will be. Or as the old creed says, Christ has come. And Christ will come again. And in the meantime, Christmas looks like it's all around us. Santa Claus uh, came in to Detroit on Thursday morning. I understand arrived at Howell with Mrs. Claus uh, on Friday evening. Um, Santa is now making the rounds at all of the malls. Um, the artificial trees are emerging from the basement. Some really... Crafty people have already gotten their lights up outside. And in the midst of all of this already decorating and running around and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, it's really weird because the church actually slows down. Not in terms of the calendar, but liturgically, spiritually, the church slows down. Commercially, it is now Christmas. And in the church, it is the first Sunday of Advent. It is a time to ponder. It is a time to wait and to watch for something that is going to happen. This is the time of year when the preacher regularly fields the perennial complaint, how come we don't get to sing all the Christmas carols that everybody is singing in the elevator and at the mall? Why do we have to sing those carols in a minor key? The answer to which is only, we will, we will, but it is not time yet. It will happen. Um, and the truth is, the music of Advent is really beautiful. Any musician loves these tunes in an Advent, in a, in a, a minor key. Um, this is the time of the year where the organist goes to war with the preacher. The organist wants to play a Bach Advent prelude and wants to sing every week, let all mortal flesh keep silence, while the people in the pews are ready to sing, joy to the world, and hark the herald angels sing. And so the minister is conflicted who to listen to, the people who pay her salary or the people who she has to work with for the rest of the year. You will notice that this is not as big a deal here. Why? Because we compromise. We let it look like Christmas while we talk about Advent, and we conveniently find Advent texts that we work into familiar Christmas melodies. So everybody 
is only a little unhappy. <laughs> to observe Advent, really to get anything out of it at all, is to deal honestly with the reality that our culture has pretty much lost sight of. And that is that waiting is not just an unfortunate reality of life. That it is a necessary part of the spiritual life. To live with the experience of already, but not yet. And in fact, waiting is a recurring theme in the scriptures. Though there, it is not very often the passive waiting that you and I think about. It is active waiting. It is more like yearning. Oh, that you would tear down the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence to make your name known to your adversaries. That's how Maggie's reading began this morning. It is a prayer that is some 2,600 years old from the 64th chapter of Isaiah, which many of you now know was Jesus' favorite prophet. Whenever the question comes up, which prophet was it? If you don't know, just guess Isaiah. That's the way to do it. Every time I hear those words that Maggie read, I think of Walter Bowman, who was a theologian at uh, Trinity Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, Walt is known for many things, but the thing he is most known for is a little book that some of you may have read. It's called Children's Letters to God. It is not a deep theological treatise, but Walt was very fond of saying every major theological question you can think of is embedded in one of those children's prayers. Dear God, are you invisible or is that just a trick? <laughs> Lucy. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy, <laughs> Joyce. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had a room of their own. It works with my brother, Larry. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? Jane. And then this Advent prayer. Dear God, are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Love, Harriet Ann. I think there's a little bit of Isaiah there in Harriet. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens, come down, and make your name known. So here is the situation for Isaiah. The armies of Babylon have crushed the Israelites. They have carried off Israel's leadership, the great politicians, the, uh, the architects, the political leaders. They have carried them back to Babylon to live in exile. It's the 6th century BC. At least a couple of generations pass along. And then this amazing thing happens. The Persians overrun the Babylonians. And one of the first things that the great Persian leader Cyrus does is he sends the Jewish exiles home, back across the deserts to Jerusalem. They have been waiting for this moment for 60 years. 
couple of generations. They have been singing laments about their homeland. They have been telling stories to their children and to their grandchildren about the strong walls and the temple that King Solomon himself built. But when they arrive, after that long trek across the desert, what they see is desolation. The walls have never been rebuilt. The temple, the heart and soul of the people, still lies in ruins. It makes the once beautiful Woodward Corridor and its surrounding neighborhoods look like the Emerald City. Maybe they should have known better, but they didn't. All of the original ones who had told these stories and who had lived through the trauma of defeat and exile, they were all gone now. And so those who did return were shocked. It must have been like those heartbreaking stories, you know, the ones you see on the news, where the families return to their neighborhood after a hurricane or a flood or a fire, and you see them sifting through the debris and the ashes, trying to find a photo album or a ring or anything that reminds them of who they were and who they are. And you see, it is at that moment that the poet prays, oh, that you would just open the heavens and come down. Are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Did you think it was a new question? It is the oldest prayer in human history. It is a prayer prayed at every occasion of tragedy, every moment of innocent suffering. If you are a good and gracious God, why did this happen? Why does evil still haunt humankind in Syria or in Central America or Auschwitz? Why don't you do something? Tear open the heavens and come down. Nicholas Wolterstoff, a Yale philosophy professor, himself a Christian, lost his 25-year-old son, Eric, in a mountain climbing accident. This is what he wrote. To the most agonized question I have ever asked, I don't have the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. The Presbyterian minister, Terry Anderson, one of the American hostages who was held in Iran for seven years during the Carter administration, wrote in his journal, I reach so hard to touch God, concentrating, waiting for something, some acknowledgement from him that I exist that he's listening. Help me. You say you love me, so help me. Who really has not prayed that or knows someone who has? On one of the last days of summer a few years ago, Tristan Tyler Shamby, a, a good student, a good athlete, a strong swimmer, drowned in Lake Michigan. His father, Charles, told the reporters, they say everything happens for a reason. I sure wish I understood why this had to happen. 
We yearn for answers. We yearn for certainty. We yearn to know that God is there, that God knows that we are here. And it is not always in the midst of a tragedy or grief. It can be an everyday yearning, something deep within us that feels almost like a part of us. Along those lines, Sophie Burham, um, a successful freelance writer, writes this. She says, I was happy, and yet there was something deeply missing. And it was a deep longing that couldn't be satisfied. I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, is this all? And then thinking, I have everything. I have a loving husband. I have a house, a child, a career. Why am I yearning for something else? I didn't know what I was yearning for. She was, of course, yearning for the same thing that Isaiah and the exiles, that Charles Shamby, that Terry Anderson, that little Harriet Ann, that you and I yearn for. She was yearning for God. She was yearning, that ancient yearning for God to do something, tear open the heavens and come down. And it's right then that Isaiah's prayer takes a surprising turn. There is a change in the tone offering up a new idea about how God comes and how God works in the world of human history. I wonder if you caught it as it was being read. After pleading with God to do something, after whining that God is hiding, after almost accusing God of not coming down to make things right, the prayer makes this startling affirmation. And yet you, O oh Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. An absolutely unique idea of how God works. God as Father. God the potter. Not some powerful force that will violently tear open the heavens and come down intervening forcefully in human affairs, not God omnipotent, but rather God as, of all things, a parent, an artist. Over the last 25 years, or so, I have come to know a few things about parenting. We can talk after. <laughs> I now know that love works a lot better than coercion. I have seen on more than one occasion, unfortunately, how my inclination to force behavioral outcomes doesn't always work, and how steady, gentle persuasion sometimes does. I have learned enough to know that um, it doesn't always work out perfectly, that there are limits, that you cannot finally protect your child against all harm and all danger, that the final act of love is not 
to hold on tightly and coerce, but rather to promise to be there in love, come what may. And I am not an artist. Lord knows, I am not an artist. But I have watched a potter at work. And I know enough to know that the potter does not force or coerce. I have watched that shapeless lump of clay whirl on the wheel and the potter gently touching a finger here or there as a shape slowly emerges. And I have thought that what a potter is doing is more drawing a form out of that lump of clay that is somehow already present in the clay. In fact, I remember in... Uh, the agony and the ecstasy. I remember Michelangelo saying something like that about the huge blocks of marbles that he would work on. He said he wasn't so much creating a form as he was releasing that form that was already there and present in the marble. And that is how the ancient prophet says, God is at work in this world and in your life and in mine, not coercively, but gently, not forcibly, but lovingly. And so God will act, will come down, but not in some act of violent tearing apart, but rather in the gentlest and quietest of ways, in the birth of a baby. God will come, we believe, not as some mighty military conqueror destroying armies, but rather in the gentle and yet strong man whose teachings would be most astonishing that it is really better to forgive than to exact revenge. He taught this radical idea that peacemakers are blessed that the meek and the merciful are actually God's most favored, and that finally the happiest and the best any of us can do is to give our lives away for his sake. And then he will do the most amazing of all things. He will go to a cross to seal the deal. He will make the point with his own body and blood Nobody ever had reason to think more intensely or more poignantly about these things than did Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German-American who you remember went back to Germany to participate in an assassination plot against Hitler. Sitting in his prison cell, waiting for his execution, wondering, I'm sure, how a good and gracious God could allow this, why a loving God wouldn't do something, Bonhoeffer wrote these words. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto a cross. He is weak and powerless in this world. And that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Dear God, you better do something quick. God has. In the event that we anticipate, 
in just a few short weeks of Advent waiting, a child will be born. And here's the thing. He will come into this world and into your life and mine, most often in quiet and inconspicuous ways, ways in which you might miss if you don't watch out, if you are not actively waiting. He will not be coercive. He will not force his way. And yet we are talking about the most powerful force in the universe because it alone has the power to conquer the human heart. And that love is God's response to our deepest yearning.